0: Welcome to Sighs and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I'm Laura McCloss Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. My guest this week is art director, author, educator, and critic Stephen Heller. An incredibly creative and prolific individual, Stephen is the author, co author, or editor of over 200 books on graphic design, illustration, and political art. I interviewed him in his office at the School of Visual Arts in the fall, around the publication of Growing Up Underground, a memoir of counterculture New York which details his teens and early 20s working in the counterculture press. At 17, he became the art director at the Counterculture Weekly, the New York Free Press. This led him to become the founding art director of the legendary sex paper Screw. After he quit a few issues in, Stephen helped found the New York Review of Sex to compete with Screw. Alongside the New York Review of Sex, he worked on many other counterculture publications, including the East Village Other, Evergreen, and Rock. He even redesigned Andy Warhol's interview in 1971. He later returned to Screw before being poached at age 24 by the New York Times to be the art director of the op-ed page. It is these early years that he documents in his non-formal, episodic memoir, from traumatic school experiences, to finding healing in drawing comics, to the mentors who opened design history to him, to the all-night-paced obsessions of the East Village Other. Heavily illustrated with covers, layouts, and photos, it is as much a visual joy as a literary one. In my academic work, I've researched and written about counterculture publications and dress quite extensively, so I loved reading Stephen's memoirs about this period. As the book ends when he joined the New York Times, I also wanted to speak to him about the years after. Stephen was an art director at the New York Times for 33 years, three years on the op-ed page before moving to the book review. In addition to his own books, he has written extensively for the New York Times and other publications, and has published a daily blog, the Daily Heller, for over 10 years. While working as an art director at the Free Press, Heller studied first at NYU and then transferred to SVA before dropping out. He later went back there as a professor. Stephen is the co-founder and co-chair of the MFA Design Department and co-founder of the MFA Design Criticism Program at SVA. As is probably apparent, Stephen has boundless curiosity and energy, seemingly little affected by the Parkinson's which he was diagnosed with in 2007. With a new book on Milton Glaser released last month, and an exhibition he co-curated that opened a poster house last week, Heller seemingly isn't slowing down anytime soon. We chat about his childhood in New York, counterculture publications and fashion, the actual process of designing and laying out an alternative paper, working for the New York Times, death and obituaries, teaching, and much more. Share with your friends, subscribe, and please write a review so that more people can find their way to this podcast. Enjoy. Thank you so much for agreeing to meet with me today and talk. My uh, pleasure. When I interview, you know, talk with people, I like to start at the beginning, find out about where they were raised, about their upbringing and heritage. So if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, I was brought up right around the corner from here, mm-hmm. which is 2nd uh, Avenue and 22nd Street. I grew up on 20th Street and Avenue C in Stuyvesant Town. And... It was 1950 and Stuyvesant Town had been built for a couple of years and it was open to World War II veterans so it was kind of a a staging ground for the new middle class. And uh, My folks were born in Brooklyn, immigrant parents, so I had at least early in my life, two grandparents, three grandparents, and one step-grandfather. I went to school around here briefly, and uh, I lived around here later on in life, after I got married the second time. So I consider myself a small-town kid.
0: Considering how big New York is, it's quite a small area. When you were growing up, I know, you know, in your book you talk about your family's origins and, you know, as Jews in Europe. When you were growing up in New York, was Jewish culture a major part of your upbringing or? Well,
1: no, not really. I mean, it was secularized. My grandfather was orthodox, but not oppressively so. he too it was prayers in the morning and I he worked in the garment district. I really didn't I knew he was working when he was, when I was conscious enough to know him, but I didn't really know what he did. He was a cutter of fabrics. Mm-hmm. But both grandparents you know, kept the traditions, but didn't seem to force them down anybody's throat. On my grandmother's side, there was some loss in Europe in the Holocaust, including her father and mother. On my father's side, I think they were all here, and I don't even know when they came here. I checked the records at one time, and I found their address in the Bronx when they first moved. And when, but they had, ha- had their kids by then, my uncle and my father. So it didn't really give me much to go on.
0: And when did you start getting into art? Were you, like, I mean, was it orig- was it first, like, comic books, or were you interested in art in general, or...?
1: No, it was first comic books, like most kids. I did go to the Museum of Modern Art Saturday Art classes, where I was a bit of a problem child. I go into it a little bit in the book. But I was restless and probably would have been diagnosed with ADHD. I kept getting thrown out of things. But I loved MoMA in those days. It wasn't as expanded as it is today. And I spent a lot of time in the Surrealist room. I was very taken with Magritte and uh, Dolly and uh, some of the other Surrealists. It was fantasy more or less. So I always even growing up had a penchant for that kind of ultra realist fantasy and when I went to the New York Times decades later as art director of the op-ed page uh, my predecessor had already started working with European illustrators that were seeped in surrealist symbology and allegory and metaphor and so it was a perfect fit.
0: Your parents obviously sent you to that Saturday school. Were they interested in the arts, or was it I don't more just so. to get you out of the house or doing something? No, uh,
1: they just wanted to get me out of the house to do something. You know, I took judo classes, which I also got thrown out of. There were various extracurricular things. I mean, when I was very young, uh, I worked at a Democratic club on First Avenue over here, stuffing envelopes. For Adlai Stevenson was running for president. I, I did a lot of stuff on my own. Uh, at five, I was able to walk around the neighborhood by myself, which today just seems incomprehensible, but things were different in those days.
0: Were you an only child?
1: Yeah, still am.
0: Yeah, I mean, what was it like growing up in New York in the, 60s, the 50s and 60s?
1: Well, it had that kind of rich color, I mean, the the easiest way to define it is there's a scene in the beginning of North by Northwest where Cary Grant is leaving the Plaza Hotel and there are all these colored taxi cabs outside. There there weren't yellow cabs. And the colors green and red and blue and yellow and orange and uh, that's what New York felt like to me. A melange of color. Stuyvesant Town was red brick, is red brick, and there was a lot of green space, so it was unusual because most of old New York was kind of grungy color or grayish. But it was a, you know, like it is today, very vibrant town, and there were lots of neighborhoods with different ethnicities. and I didn't feel like I was in a special place, but I always would think, gee, I'm, I'm glad I don't live on a farm, or I'm glad I don't live in the suburbs. Or, I, I was appreciative of being here, and I couldn't see leaving, and I haven't left.
0: Ever? At all?
1: Well, I moved to Sweden for a short period of time where I was kind of radicalized. Mm -hmm. And I have a house in the country, but the longest time I ever spent there was during the pandemic, three or four months.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, in your book, you talk about that trip to Sweden. And was that your first experience with the counterculture or were you aware of it beforehand?
1: No, I was not aware of it beforehand. It was the first time I, you know, I had seen the Beatles on TV, but I didn't know there was a culture connected to it. Mm. Uh, So Sweden was the first time I experienced what would ultimately be considered counter or alternative culture. And then coming back to New York and going to Greenwich Village, that's when it all kind of coalesced.
0: And that's when you first discovered, like, the underground press?
1: Yeah, around that moment I was the first time I I became aware that there were issues. You know, I remember seeing on 14th Street there was a Woolworths when I was maybe 11 or 12, and I saw pickets in front of the Woolworths, and it was a civil rights sit-in, and I didn't really understand what it was all about. My father explained civil rights to me he wasn't an activist by any stretch i saw that there were things going on that were not right
0: in your book you talk about that your sort of teen years and getting kicked out of various schools and the well and also the military school and then the sort of oppressive one Could you talk a little bit about those
1: my my parents were concerned about me just as i was concerned about my son and they had me tested To see, you know, it was an age when psychological testing was just becoming a a fad, uh, an expensive fad. You know, whatever they had heard from my primary school teachers or rabbi or whatever, they wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to go off the deep end. So they had me tested at NYU, and NYU suggested that I was a a good candidate for strenuous exercise, an all-boys environment, and certain amount of regimentation. So they found a school to send me to called McBurney, and it was a private school on the west side near Central Park. It was run by the YMCA, but I think there was, some, it you know, it wasn't like the YMCA was anything but secular. Going there for the first year, I really liked it. I liked the regimentation. I liked the, uh, the idea that we wore uniforms and we could compete in sports. I got a letter sweater. Curiously, I got the letter sweater for trying hard because I was a wrestler and I lost all my matches because they... In order for me to actually wrestle in a match, I had to lose a considerable amount of weight every day. So I'd go into the YMCA steam room and exercise, and so I'd lose five pounds, which meant I had no strength left. So they really gave me the award for being a good sport. In fact, the guy who presented the award to me, because I for some reason I was pissed at my father and I didn't want him to come to the awards ceremony. And so I was at the table all alone sitting next to uh, one of my classmates, a friend, Jason Robarts III. And his father, Jason Robarts Jr. was a very f- famous actor. And Jason asked his dad if he would be my father for the night. so. When I got the award, Jason the third, junior, came up with me and accepted it. It
0: doesn't, yeah, it doesn't sound very healthy, the steam room thing.
1: No, no. But it was, you know, it was consistent with what I became. Uh, I had to wake up, I had to go in when it was dark, it was five o'clock in the morning. Most of my working life, I'd get up early and go in at 5 or 5.30 in the morning to the Times. It's only been since the pandemic that I've, I still get up at 5.30, but I don't go in. I yeah. got radicalized a year after I was in McBurney, and then I didn't fit in any longer into the, to the fabric of the school. I'm sure there were other kids who were like that, but I didn't really know them. We had a dean of discipline and one of his tasks was to make sure everybody conformed to the dress code and that included hair and it had to be a certain length and I started growing mine long and uh, we had a run-in about that and he had my head shaved so it was what I look like now but then it wasn't appropriate mm-hmm. and that kind of threw me for a loop. And precipitated a lot of anger and a lot of reaction, and I became more rebellious and more problem ridden. My uncle, who was a Columbia professor and a very liberal person, convinced my parents that I should be sent to a a therapist and that it would be a good idea to get me out of the school. And they listened to him, and I did. That changed my attitude. It changed my life. It got me more into the art side of things. And I started having aspirations to uh, be a famous artist. I couldn't be a rock star because I didn't... The piano lessons I got were a waste. But it was a time when, since Stuyvesant Town is so close to the East Village... The East Village became the hippie capital of New York. Just proximity to it got me, compelled me to be part of it.
0: Had you always been drawing, or did you just start drawing around that time?
1: Well, I'd always been drawing. I always made up kind of storyboards, and I'd speak out the parts, mm-hmm. you know. So it was kind of like talking to myself. And I created characters, and... Uh, They would talk to one another, and it kept me busy while I wasn't allowed to watch television. But these drawings that I started doing after the incident were very dark, and although they were very colorful, the subject matter was very dark and very introspective. And the curious thing was my mother kind of was enamored with them, She would show them to her friends, which drove me crazy because they were my world, not her world. But she'd show them as if they were trophies, and that just got me really pissed. And my activity in the East Village and particularly in the underground environment was as much a part of breaking the links between her and me I left home when I was 17 and got an apartment across town. I don't remember how I could pay for it, but I did. It wasn't that expensive by today's standards, but it required that I get a job, which I did at a newspaper. But by then I was out of high school anyway, and I was briefly going to NYU,
0: in your book you mention, at like 15, showing your book to The New Yorker and in Ever- Evergreen. How did you have the confidence or even know that this was something that you could do?
1: Well, I didn't have confidence. I didn't really know I could do it. And the result was rather negative, so it sent me for, uh, into a tailspin for uh, a while where I didn't show it any longer but then I got a little more confident when I went to Walden School, and an art teacher was very encouraging. And at that point, you know, either I had the opportunity to be reclusive, which is what happened after my head was shaved, or more out there, which therapy helped me through. I just took a chance. I don't know whether I'd do it again. Uh, I don't know whether I'd have the same chutzpah. But I've always kind of, without being overly chutzpatic, I always tried things that had question marks at the end of them.
0: Yeah, I just, you know, personally, I can't imagine at 15 having gone and shown any, you know, my, felt like I was comfortable doing that. So I was, you know, it seems impressive to me. And then obviously you've got these, you know, real jobs by 17 working, what it grew was really or or the New York Free Press I
1: actually worked when I was 12 at an ad agency I got the jobs because of my mother and I didn't keep them long uh, because I was unskilled but uh, the idea of you know I remember going to get working papers when I was pretty young you could get them when you were like 13 I had to go all the way up to East Harlem to get papers. So it didn't seem out of whack. It didn't seem like anything I was doing was particularly radical or unconventional.
0: I think that's changed. I don't I don't think we have those kind of work papers anymore. I
1: don't know. I mean, I think there's child labor laws, but there were child labor laws when I was a kid. You know, you could only do a certain kind of job mm-hmm. at that age. They tried me out at different slightly more creative jobs, and I ended up packing boxes.
0: But the first real job was, what, New York Free Press?
1: The New York Free Press was the first job job that would kind of, unbeknownst to me, become a career.
0: Mm-hmm. What exactly was a pay step, and how was it sort of put together?
1: Well, I remember seeing the word mechanical in the Times as I was looking in the one ads, and I asked my father what it was, and he didn't know. So I was surprised to learn when I showed up at the Free Press that what I was going to be doing was were mechanicals. And it was just pasting up using glue or wax, putting down columns of type, which I learned were galleys, and cutting out pictures and pasting them in, which I learned were called v And I just learned the basics of page makeup we did, did it all on sheets of paper with non-reproducible blue lines grids i worked with a t square and a ruler and ruling tape and all of what i did was very haphazard and uh, i didn't understand the rules of balance formal concerns contrasts color i kind of just followed what I saw was being done. It was like going to school. I mean, I was in NYU at the time, and school, college just seemed like an extension of high school, except more impersonal. Uh, And this seemed more like kindergarten, playing with cutouts. So I liked kindergarten better than I liked college.
0: And once everything was pasted down, what was the next step with the sheet?
1: The next step was... It got read, and corrections would be made by cutting out words and putting the words in. And uh, then it would go to the printer, and it would come back the next day.
0: Okay, so it wasn't like photog- to make it all like a flat sheet. I, I didn't know if there was like a step in between to it.
1: No, because we didn't do that. We just sent the mechanicals. We okay. covered it with a tissue, made notations if we needed color or we needed something but to a border. Mm-hmm but it was fairly primitive. At the same time, it was fairly easy compared to what I remembered when I went on a class trip when I was a kid to the local town and village newspaper and they showed us how letterpress worked, which didn't really come back to my memory until much later on. But then when I went to the Times, we were still working in letterpress and hot metal and page makeup with printers who put all of it together while we, as art directors, kind of helped direct them. We couldn't touch type Mm because that was against the union rules.
0: When did you realize that this was like the right path, your career path, like you felt like a passion for it?
1: Right away, you know, as I said, it was like kindergarten. But it was kindergarten with some really cool people, you know. I can't remember her name, but we had a great news photographer who would come in all the time. She was also beautiful, so I had a big crush on her. And there were writers, a few of whom I had heard about, one of whom I had read, actually. So I knew I was into something. I knew, for example, during the 1968 Democratic National Convention when all the rioting was breaking out, we were in the the office Getting reports back from people who were there, and it was as thrilling as being at the New York Times when uh, major events happened. You know, I remember being at the Times when Ronald Reagan was shot, and how we all had to jump to and get a paper out.
0: One of my favorite sort of because I've done a lot of research on.
1: The various counterculture
0: magazines at different points, and spent a lot of time, like in the New York Public Library, like going through page by page and looking at them. And I loved when you were talking about, I think it was the East Village Other, Mm -hmm. like going to their paste ups and just sort of the disorganization of it all. Were there any that you thought were particularly inspiring design wise to you, or you know, because there's such variance among those papers? Yeah,
1: there were the undergrounds were not very pretty, but what I used as models reference points, primarily was Rolling Stone, tabloid, quarterfold newspaper. But I was very taken with Evergreen Review and Ramparts. I was really enamored with Holiday Magazine, Look Magazine, Esquire. These were all things that I could find in doctor's offices or my parents subscribed to Holiday, for example. And I would look at their mastheads and I'd see who did what. I didn't know what an art director was before going to the Free Press, but I realized he was the one that put the newspaper together. So that was Frank Zachary, and he was somebody I later became friends with, and he died at 100, maybe 10 years ago. He was a great guy. You know, I, I met most of the people whose work I admired. Herb Blue uh, Henry Wolf, a lot of terrific overground magazine people. The underground group, there were few that went on to continue designing for papers. Some went on to writing, and a couple that I know of went on to being designers. But primarily it was, you know, slap-dash job. The things that were done, in part because of the technology, you could set your own type with the photo machines or the magnetic tape machines that were around, and, you know, the, you could make photostats if you had a photostat camera, and uh, it's all been synthesized and put into this box, which is no longer a box, it's just a screen. Mm-hmm. But that was a liberating time if you were doing this kind of thing.
0: It seems like it was exciting to be in. A...
1: It was exciting. It was also matter-of-fact because it's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But somewhere in the Times morgue photo files, I found a photograph of me coming back from a... just accidentally stumbled across it. And I was walking back from a session at East Village Other. I was in front of Jem's spa, and I looked really ragged because you'd spend all night there, and sleep was not an option.
0: How did you get involved with Al Goldstein and Screw Magazine?
1: Well, at the Free Press, he had walked in one day, as many people did, to pitch a story that he was writing. I didn't know anything about him. I just saw this heavyset guy walking in. And the next thing I knew was his story was accepted. It was about being an industrial spy for the Bendix Corporation, which had, I don't, I'm not even sure I remember what the Bendix Corporation did, but I know it had something to do with the war effort. And he got to talking to our managing editor who was also our typesetter. And my office was adjacent to that office. They had cooked up this idea to create an underground sex paper uh, that would not aestheticize sex the way Playboy and some of the men's magazines did. And it would be an antidote to the blood and guts sensationalist papers like The, the Globe or The World, uh, which were run by a guy named Myron Fass. Uh, and they basically just made up stories about murders and in gruesome detail. But they refused to do sex stories. And Goldstein, whatever his background was, which I later learned, felt that there was a certain hypocrisy there. And he had this instinct to want to change the way morals and mores were perceived, at least in New York. And, you know, he ended up being labeled a pornographer and a a filthy... Pervert, but he was really a disturbed kid from the Bronx or Brooklyn, whose father was a newspaper photographer, I think, for the Post or the Mirror. He got messed up at some point during his life, but at the same time he had a social conscience. And uh, when those conflicting forces come together, you never know what's going to happen. You become a stand-up comic. And he was kind of a sit-down comic. I got involved because I was there. Mm. And Jim Buckley turned his head into the doorway where I was near where I was sitting and said, "You want to do this?" And I said, "Sure." So I just did it. We had all the materials at hand. We had the typesetting machine. We had the paste, the glue, the wax, the ruling tape. So I didn't know what I was doing, but I did it. And I did it for like three or four or five issues. And then we had some tussle about something or other. It was the logo. And uh, I left. Originally there was supposed to be a conglomeration of activities. The Free Press wasn't making any money. The publisher of the Free Press was a guy who wanted to make money. And so the editor, Sam Edwards, was a bartender at the 55 Club, which was right next to the Stonewall, and was before the Stonewall happened. And he wanted to own a bar. So some business guy came in and said, you know, we could put a lot of things together and make a a company. Could have the free press, could have the high school free press, which which came out of our office, you could have Screw, you could get this place called the Buffalo Roadhouse, and you could have some other ancillary businesses. And it, it all depended on Screw being, Jim Buckley and Goldstein being willing to be involved in this. And they quickly learned because the sales of Screw and the notoriety of Screw were on the rise that Screw was really the fulcrum of this whole thing. And they didn't want to go into that kind of arrangement, so they pulled out. So we started our own sex paper as a kind of revenge paper. Somebody called it Revenge Sex. And we did ours, the New York Review of Sex, and New York Review of Sex and Politics, it was later called, to compete and to be on the newsstand. And we really didn't know much of what we were doing or how to do it, so we called in people from the Free Press. We kept the two going simultaneously for a few weeks, maybe a month. The free Press didn't make any money, the Sex Review did a little bit, and we folded the Free Press. But all the undergrounds in New York had some sort of sex paper, or at least their advertising In addition to record companies were sex shops and massage parlors and the like so because of that you had a built-in readership of sex buyers and they would keep these publications alive
0: you were so young at that point right like in your teens still
1: 17.
0: Did you enjoy being, like, involved with those kind of papers? Or was it more just like, this is a job and this is the money-making thing? I mean, obviously, anyone at Seventeen is probably interested in sex, but were you interested in the world of it that way?
1: It was both, actually. I mean, I used to love looking through Playboy. I'd get turned on in my adolescence, pubescence. And so, seeing pictures was a vicarious thrill and actually putting them on a page was kind of fun. But it was also a publication, and I loved laying things out, playing with cut up pieces of paper. So, uh, and at that point, I was trying to see if I could make myself do it better than I had done it previously. So it became an experimental uh, outlet for me. So I left kindergarten and I was in junior high school.
0: You know, you continued in the underground press for what, like five years probably?
1: It was from like 60, late 67 to 73.
0: By that point, you sort of what graduated into real life and went to the New York Times. And how different was that?
1: Well, I graduated a bit before that because I started my own little magazine three or four months into working at Free Press. And I put an ad in the Village Voice for contributors. And the one that came into my life who made the most impression and taught me, brought me out of junior high into high school and into college, was uh, Brad Holland, an illustrator. a Very fine illustrator, who is still a very fine illustrator and painter. And so he taught me the skills and the ethos of publication design and the importance of illustration in that equation. And then it was another few years I went to work for different publications. After the New York Review of Sex folded, we folded because we were busted a couple of times. I went to jail, lock up for a couple of times. Uh, we we took our case to the state supreme court and won. and. I worked for a music magazine, I did other things. And then I went back to Screw, where I really tried mastering the craft of design, graphic design. I think I did a pretty good job, given that I had no real experience, academic experience. Uh, and I certainly did a good enough job to be noticed by Ruth Ansell, was the art director of the magazine section and had previously been the co-art director of Harper's Bazaar. I was noticed by the design director of the Times, Lou Silverstein, and he hired me, uh, which was kind of like the miracle of all miracles. And I kind of went back to zero from that point, because it was a different situation. I did become an adult, but I had to learn how to shed some of my underground experience and figure out what I could retain and what I had to learn. So my first few years at The Times at the op-ed page were not the most, they were satisfying, but they were difficult. And then I ended up at the book review, which was extremely enjoyable. Although I worked through six different editors and there were a couple that were not enjoyable.
0: Once you got to the Times, both the op-ed and later, the book review, were most of the works commissioned, or, were they, or there, were they existing works? And how did you sort of decide what to choose?
1: Well, everything was commissioned, more or less. We At the op-ed page, we had a bank, and we had regular contributors, maybe a, f- a few dozen, and they would bring in sketches or finished drawings. Brad was kind of top among them and they'd have their own content, they'd have their own rationale, and we would put them on a board. We'd make a plate of them and put the proof on a board, and we'd pair it up to articles, so that there was no literal translation, whereas with some of them we just commissioned them and there was a kind of more literal link. My predecessor, who actually gave me my first job at the Free Press, J.C. Suarez, he had been the art director of the op page and he had created this environment where a lot of European, particularly Eastern European, artists were involved in drawing. And they came from a background, a heritage of early 20th century art, and 19th century art, that was black and white and filled with allegory and symbolism, metaphor. At that point, the... Editors of the op-ed page were accustomed, unlike news editors, to seeing in art the associations rather than the literal illuminations. But for the book review, everything was commissioned. I couldn't pair a story on oil production with a Brad Holland image of a dinosaur becoming, coming out of a tank of gas
0: when deciding who to commission, did you sort of read an article and then just immediately get the idea, or would you how did you How did you approach it?
1: Well, that? there were different ways. First of all, I, I wanted to have my own cast of characters, so every morning around 7 o'clock, I would have appointments with people who uh, showed me their portfolios. I'd give them a maximum of 10 minutes, and if I felt that they were right for us, uh, I'd give them an assignment usually a letter to the editor to illustrate and if they came back and it was a great piece uh, I'd use them again and if it didn't work I'd give them one more chance Uh, I was very laissez-faire in a way I relied on the illustrators to have ideas when I introduced my own ideas I always felt they were very stiff and if i did introduce my own ideas i would give them to illustrators who could loosen them up you know like a, a songwriter and lyrics to a song relies on a singer to give his own personality and character to it and so i became an orchestra conductor i'd of course read the copy or at least skim the copy and it worked two ways if there was A piece of copy that I knew would be handled well by somebody, I'd give it to them. Or if it was a piece of copy that I just really either didn't care about or couldn't figure out, I'd give it to anybody who was kind of on the waiting list. Artists would call me every, when I was at the book review, they would call me every, say, Wednesday. That's when I got my schedule. It was all telephone. There was no email till the end or near the end. And I'd say yes or no. And then they'd have to come in and get the stuff because we didn't use faxes either. But all that changed as the technology changed. But I gave a lot of people their first jobs.
0: So did you only work with artists who were in New York if they had to physically come in and get things?
1: Yeah, mostly the artists were in New York, unless I wanted somebody special who wasn't. then I gave them enough time. Or they were in the, the outlying areas and they'd have ways of getting this stuff in. FedEx didn't exist either. It, as I said, it got easier as far as delivery and commission uh, went as the technology and the business model changed. It used to be an illustrator would, who lived out in the boonies, was close enough to a railroad train where they'd give the, the envelope to a conductor and the conductor would give it to somebody when they reached New York.
0: You mentioned earlier that you have always gotten up early, even though you weren't on a news page. What was like your schedule life?
1: Well it wasn 't a news page, but it was a daily page, and it was seven days a week. so my schedule was very often I had twenty four hours also very often i had they switched things on me also very often i 'd get advanced stories and I'd prepare for those, so it worked. Whatever had to be done, I still had to put in a twelve hour day. With the book review, there was a little more time, but there was a time where I was working on the op-ed and the book review at the same time, so I would put in eighteen hour days.
0: Seven days a week?
1: Not seven days a week, but I'd come in on the weekends.
0: And when did you start writing?
1: Well, I had always been writing a little bit, even for the undergrounds, doing gag ads or something. But I started writing where it was leading to something else. Sometime in the late 70s, I was asked to write a couple of profiles for a magazine called Graphis, a Swiss design magazine. And they were stories that were basically there to introduce the portfolios. Then at some point, I decided I wanted to do my own book And the first book I did was called Artists' Christmas Cards. And I collected these Christmas cards from all these different artists, living and dead. And uh, I had to write an introduction. So that was the first time I was put together with an editor. And the next book I did for this publisher was called Man Bites Man. And I had to do profiles of 20 different satiric artists. Tom Wolfe did the introduction for that book. That was in the days when I figured, what have I got to lose? I'll get his number, I'll call him, and I'll ask him. He was quite happy to do it. But I started writing more frequently after that. I wrote for print magazine for 35 years. And now I'm a part owner of it. The Times, at a certain point, started giving me these short reviews to do, which were initialed. They weren't bylined, and then I kind of Graduated to byline pieces. And at a certain point, I started writing obituaries for the Times, who were all byline pieces. And because I was doing that, different sections would come to me when they had design ish stories to be written. I did that, and I worked for all sorts of magazines and ended up just doing thousands of pieces.
0: Was it Brad Holland who got you sort of interested in the history of design?
1: More or less. He was showing me all of these Weimar artists, and he also had a much broader scope than that, but the Weimar artists appealed to me because it was very political. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was interested in political art and satire. And another thing I did when I was on the op-ed page was I would go to galleries every Saturday and look for artists who were not illustrators Mm -hmm. who would work in the the op-ed page. And it was not actually the most efficient way of getting illustrators, but I got some interesting artists, including Klaus Oldenburg. And
0: Did you ever use older art, like pre existing older art?
1: Well, that's what was done on the Book Review prior to. J.C. Suarez was also art director of the Book Review mm-hmm. before me. And the routine at the Book Review was there was a photo editor, and that photo editor would pick artwork from art books Mm. and match them to stories. And that just seemed old fashioned. So I didn't do it. Eventually on the op-ed page, there were certain artists like Francesca Goya whose images worked perfectly with a particular theme. So I would take that, but they had to be images that were that worked well printed on a newsprint page so that they they actually looked like an op-ed piece of art.
0: And when did you start teaching?
1: I started right after I was thrown out of the school. From NYU I came to SVA to avoid the draft. I got thrown out for not going to classes and then I was hired. I proposed a class on newspaper design and I was hired to do that and that's around the time I got the Times job, so I left teaching. Then I came back a couple of years later because Marshall Arisman, who passed away this spring and who was the one who threw me out, uh, was starting a graduate program in illustration and asked me to teach the history of illustration.
0: Did you enjoy teaching? Do you enjoy teaching?
1: Well, I enjoyed lecturing. I would never say I taught. I tend to relate and then critique, but I've had a number of teaching classes here, but I kind of rely on the students to teach themselves Mm -hmm. and I just give them guidance or I introduce them to something they've never known before. But I don't call that teaching. I call it sharing. I helped design Decrit. I helped design this program, Designer as Entrepreneur. I conceived of Designer as Entrepreneur. I conceived of Decrit. And I conceived of three or four other programs.
0: And those specifically deal with, like, graphic design and illustration? And-
1: well, one was social documentary film. Okay. I had met somebody whose chair now, Maro Chumayev, who was the daughter of a very well-known designer, Ivan Chumayev. And I had known that the president of the school was interested in documentary film, so I proposed that first. I had been doing conferences at the school on the history of design, American graphic design. And so I was in a trajectory to do something else, and the founder of the school, Silas Rhodes, took a cotton to me and asked me to put together the master's program.
0: And what has that been like, running that?
1: It's been great. I mean, I do it with my co-chair, Lita Tellerico, who I had worked with prior to this, and she's been wonderful she pretty much runs things now I've been inspirational and influential but I don't do the administrative work and she's grown considerably over the years and does a lot of the conceptual work now
0: do you still teach any courses?
1: yeah Yeah. in Decrit I teach a uh, object of design class it's a way of writing a a short history or biography of an object. It grew into a way of thinking. And I used to do a class called No Google. It was a research class that they couldn't use Google for. And I teach now here a class devoted to propaganda. So it's a history class, but it's also a contemporary making class. The last one for this semester will be next week, and they have to create an alphabet that represents anger and then show how it works in a context. So I use a very broad brush when I talk about propaganda. You know, it has to be something that informs and convinces and manipulates, but that's just about everything.
0: Yeah, it's the most advertising, too.
1: Yeah.
0: It sounds like it would probably be a really interesting and fun class to do.
1: Well, it's fun when the students work well. And they've, this year they've done great stuff, and last year they did. Before that, it was just a lecture class.
0: You also write this, the Daily Heller every day, which, you know, is impre- it seems incredibly impressive to publish it every, you know, considering how in-depth each piece is. How long does that take you to write those? Well,
1: sometimes pieces? it takes longer than it should. I've been doing it for, I guess, 10 years. And I have five collaborators who are part owners of print now. And we just do, it's called print, but we just do digital online. And I joined the group so I could continue to do the Daily Heller, but it's become, I wouldn't say burdensome, but I would say difficult because I've got to come up with an idea every day So a lot of it I do is based on books that are out without reviewing the books. I I do a lot of interviewing. So the stories really come directly from the interviewees. Uh, I'm about to do the Bob Dylan book, and I had gotten in touch with the designer. I thought I'd do it from her point of view, Mm. but she demurred. She said, I'm a backstage person, so I have to write the, the story without relying on her quotes uh, which is fine and I do it all the time but that takes time to do so I don't my my pieces tend to be short form now rather than extra long the way they used to be
0: I think they're still quite I mean I was looking at some of the recent ones and I was it's still research and writing that takes time a lot of effort how have you always you know back when you were doing say the times and lots of books and had a family and you know later the the school and the Heller and everything, and books. How have you balanced it all, made time for everything?
1: I just had the energy, I don't have it anymore. It was just, you know, my addiction. I never did drugs, uh, I never got too involved in liquor. I spent most of my time working. And at the same time, well, I, I had two previous wives and I devoted more of my time to working and to husbanding. And when I married Louise Feely, it was because she was such a great designer that I became aware of her. And that was the perfect combination. We were both passionate about our work.
0: You've collaborated on some books, which are beautiful. We've
1: done about 15 or more books.
0: Yeah, Yeah, amazing. So I know you were diagnosed with Parkinson's, like, what, 10 or 11 years ago? Something. How has that affected your work and your creativity? And
1: Well, it's an annoyance. It's also an excuse for not doing as much. But as my two Parkinson's doctors have said, you're gonna die from something else. I just don't wanna get into a state where I'm vegetating. And I haven't, I mean, it's been slow moving and the drugs seem to work. And there was a point where I was you know fielding phone calls from people who were being diagnosed with it became the disease of the moment, and it's very different disease than for each person, so I figure I got off lucky I mean right now, my legs are have nerve problems, so it's hard to walk without pain, but that has nothing to do with the parkinson's it's just the warranty wears off and uh I had a PD exam yesterday, the quarterly exam and uh, I had flying colors and I'm used by the doctor, who te- it's a teaching hospital, Columbia Press. and uh, I'm always the model patient but part of it is I set myself up for an early morning appointment where I'm in best, the best shape and I take the drugs right before, so I don't uh, show too many so- symptoms.
0: Did it change the way you look at the world in any way? Or no. no.
1: It made me feel like everybody's got something, and how you deal with it cannot be judged because everybody has a different response to severity and inconvenience and fear. And uh, that's about it. I mean, I don't look at it as... I have only so much more time, uh, I've just, just the other day I was talking to a friend of mine who's a very well-known cartoonist and he's about ready to go and it was just so sad to talk to him on the phone where he was kind of like giving his last testament and you know he may not depart for months or it could be days and he's totally conscious and totally aware and it's sad and I have to feel lucky that it's not me but when Marshall died unexpectedly or suddenly that really hit me hard and it's still with me because he he's not my best friend but he's my closest friend here and you know I've known him through three wives mine you know I wouldn't be in the school if not for him He was just an amazing kind of person. So this kind of limited period we have on earth is getting to me.
0: What's it been like writing the obituaries for so many people that you knew?
1: Well, most of them were fine because I wanted to get their stories told and on the record. And the first one was Paul Rand. And I had subsequently done a professional biography of him. So those were fine. And then right after Paul was a friend of mine who was my age. And within two weeks of that, another one who was my age, maybe a little younger, passed away. And that was kind of a shocker. But then most of the time, it was people I knew who I knew their work. I didn't necessarily know them until Dougal Sturmer died, and he, in the book, is my second mentor. And that was tough, because, first of all, I had to sell him to the obit desk, and they had allowed me to do it. If it was today, and I was there, and it happened, oh, if, if it was today, I wouldn't be able to get him in. I would call up, and, as I still do, and say, so-and-so has passed away, and, you know, maybe one out of every three they'll do. But I, I'm not doing them anymore. Uh, and the excuse I use is that it got too close, but the reality is, you know, I think they wanted to keep it on the desk, and I had a very good editor uh, when I was doing them, so they conform to time style, and, uh, you know, things change.
0: At one point, I looked on your website, and I scrolled down, and there was like a list of the obituaries, I think some of the older ones you've done, but I recognized some of the names from the book, like J.C. Suarez, and I can imagine it would feel, you know, people you worked with and interacted with it feel
1: Well, it was kind of a gift to be able to do them, mm-hmm. and I was immortal at the time, so my own mortality didn't come to play, but after a certain amount of years, it, you know, I'm not a reporter, and I'm not a desk editor, and so... I look at it as very personal in some respects. I mean, I would also get people I'd never heard of before, and I'd have to do the research, and I'd be kind of embarrassed that I hadn't heard of them after doing the research. Or the desk would call me and they'd say, "Is so-and-so passed away, should we do this person? And I'd have to be the judge, so I would call two or three other people if I didn't know who they were, and see if these people knew them. But now the people that I called are in their 90s, and it's just weird.
0: Mm-hmm. How did you decide to do the memoir, and also why, did, why is it just sort of the early years of your career?
1: Well, I don't have many stories to tell about the later years, at least not that I'm conscious of. The, those ten years, you know... John Reed's book was Ten Days That Shook the World. And I have coined this as ten years that shook my life. The stories that I tell from that period of time, whether embellished or not, seem to be more exciting to people who listen to them and more exciting for me to tell. So I had been writing pieces that kind of took incidents. I saw that they could be tied together and I always wanted to write something that was memoirish and got afraid of doing it by reading really terrific memoirs and but figured well i've got all these stories in the back end and in the front end i've got all these events in my life that led to a certain point so i'd try it out but there's as i said in the book there's a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor and uh Now people, when I give interviews, which is mostly what I do when out in the world promoting it, uh, they ask if there's another in the works, because I kind of allude to it, and I have no idea, you know. It would be a very different kind of book, because I couldn't really dip into my formative past. It would have to start when I left the op-ed page and go into the book review, and then it's really just about being an art director at the New York Times. And ultimately, creating books of which I've done 200, and to kind of list off the books becomes a resume or a bibliography annotated, and that I don't think is going to make such a great memoir. So if I can, think, I, I came up with an idea to do a memoir about my imaginary brother, but that just seems like a conceit that won't go anywhere because my imaginary brother died in the 50s, and he was. If you do the math, he had to have been older than my parents.
0: I'm sure that, the, that you have more than enough stories, actually, from those other... You know, that, that people like I would find interesting, you know? But it's just you have to, I guess, start writing. even, you Because know? I think, how did you... Did you write this the um, growing up underground? Did you write it in sort of sections and then re- figure out how they fit together?
1: Yeah, the front part of the book, I kind of wrote in one long chunk, you know, knowing that there were going to be these chapters. And then this, from the middle on, from where I write about Brad Holland as a mentor, then they were essays I had written that I rewrote and tied them together and then wrote a few more at the end. So there was stuff there. But this is a book that's coming out now, and it has essays in it that are more personal, but they're still about the profession. Or about people in the profession and there are stories that i ran on daily heller
0: when you like look back over your whole life and all the things you've done what are you most proud of
1: just doing it you know that somebody sent me a bunch of questions to answer yesterday and they said what are you most proud of and the only answer i could you know each time a book comes out i'm proud that it's done or i'm disappointed depending on the book but I'm just proud that I managed to do it with what I consider limited skills, and I'm particularly proud of my son, who is very well known among New Yorkers uh, as New York Nico, and he just signed on a very big book, which he's earning more than I've earned for 200 books, called New York Nico and Friends New York. He's done very well for himself helping people, you know, doing crowdfunding during COVID, doing Instagram things, you know, his Instagram for him is what the underground press was for me.
0: I didn't realize he was your son, but yeah.
1: So you know who he is. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. I mean, he does wonderful things for, you know, supporting the community and people out, you know, everyone out in New York.
1: So he's a major project, and, you know, he could have turned out any which way. He has some of my anxiety and He has a lot of his mom in him, but he has his own way of doing things and his own abilities. I mean, he's much more out there than I ever was.
0: It sounds like you were also, to put yourself forward the way you did to get on the staff of these presses, you were also more out there than a lot of other people, you know?
1: Well, I was out there in a time when people were out there. I do have a book, a book of essays that you might be interested in.
0: When was this one done?
1: It was when- done right before the pandemic. And it's set up to be a classroom mm-hmm. book, but it's not. It's just another excuse for another collection of essays. And I've done about six collections of essays or more.
0: What's next?
1: Well, I have a book coming out in the fall on that I did with Seymour Quast on hell. It's been published already in Europe, mm. but... Princeton is going to do it in the US, in English. There's a book that's coming out in March that I did with a couple of other people on Milton Glaser called Pop, and it's his period of where he kind of interfaces with pop art and pop culture. and So it's like 65 to, or 60 to 70, 60 to 80. It's 20 years of stuff. And then um, this thing is coming out soon. It's a facsimile of a catalog book that was done by Ladislav Sutnar, who was a, a graphic designer, And this is one of his masterpieces. And then I had a couple of ideas for something and' see where they go. But I, I've cut back on the amount of work I do, because it's just too stressful.
0: You know, over the years, obviously, I've come across your books many times. You know, from quite a young age, and then at some point realized that they were all you. You know.
1: So, are you a designer?
0: No, I mean, I'm a historian, and I did my degrees in fashion history. Mm -hmm. But I'm just really interested in all of the arts, I guess. You know, and really interested in graphic design. And I think I'm just one of those people who's sort of voracious collector of information, and I've always collected magazines
1: and books. And are you from New York?
0: I was born here, yeah. But I grew up in London.
1: Did you ever go to that magazine store on 12th Street?
0: Gallagher's? Gallagher's. Yeah, amazing place.
1: I ran into them originally. They did a flea... It wasn't a flea market, I guess it was, but it was a paper show in St. Xavier's Church, and we lived right down the block. And then they opened their store and just... You know every fashionista in the world would go there.
0: I wish that was still around, but um, yeah, now I just sort of obsessively search eBay and flea markets and everywhere.
1: Yeah since it's all gone online, I've lost it all. I mean the stuff that's in this room came from a, an apartment that I used to own, not own rented uh, that was full of my stuff and I got rid of fifty percent of it at sales that we set up, shop at. SVA for three different weekends and the rest of it I gave away and I still have tons of material but I don't know where anything is anymore.
0: All of the sort of counterculture papers that are in your book are those from your most of them from your own collection? Those are
1: all from my own. I saved them I should have saved more but I gave them to collectors or historians over the years and I also put them places where I couldn't get to them, so there's stuff that, like I gave all my screws to the SVA archive. In fact, they have about 500 things of mine, a lot of my transcripts and tapes, but I figured I'd put what I needed to in the books, and then I'd give the material to somebody like the Cooper Hewitt.
0: Mm-hmm. When you were part of the underground press and in the counterculture and even before that i guess how did you become aware of how people dressed like the, the sort of the dress hippie dress the countercultural dress just by looking at people or was it ever did you ever read about it in those papers and there wasn't d- discussion? much i
1: mean evo had slum goddess but that was not fashion yeah. there was cheap chic but funny you mention it because i i did a, a radio show um that Randy Cohen does called People, Places, Things. And you, instead of talking about yourself directly, you pick a place and a person and a thing. So I picked the Fillmore East, the FUGS, and the thing was a button called I'm an enemy of the state. But what I also wanted to do and got in through the FUGS was a different drummer clothing store. Do you know about that?
0: I've seen the name just in like a ad.
1: Well, they put out a lot of ads, but that's where most of us went to get our gear. There was also fashion stores, mostly for men, of course, but on Bleecker Street and West Fourth, where you know I I bought pinstripe bell bottoms, which I wore with a German Wehrmacht jacket, which got me in trouble on the streets. Some old lady came up to me and started berating me, and I never wore it again. But I still have it. But different drummer had. All the terrific Army-Navy stuff, plus... There was a place on 42nd Street called Kaufman's, which was a real Army-Navy store, and people would go there for things, but different drummer kind of curated what they had. Well, I magazine was a disseminator, because mm-hmm. that was Hearst, I think. Yeah, it was Hearst. In fact, I went there with my portfolio to get a, try to sell work. It was on LaGuardia Place. And the art director who was there later came to the New York Times. Went from there to Esquire to the New York Times. I think he's still at the New York Times. And he had a... He must... Jesus, he must be close to 80 now. Richard Weigand. And he used to go out with this performance artist who dealt in fashion stuff called Padalesco. But I was kind of like the beginning of the end for counterculture. It wasn't bad, but it was like, then I started buying the teen magazines, like 16 and Tiger Beat. And that's where, for me, at least before I entered the underground, when I was in that pivotal place, I started picking up fashion things, mm-hmm. since have become the least fashionable I know. When I went to the Times, Ruth took me out, and we got two St. Laurent suits and ties, at my hair a little bit and uh from that point on it was just straight stuff and then the Gap came and Banana Republic came and we needed to buy real clothes.
0: When you were at the Times how much were you dealing with the sort of top brass like Abe Rosenthal
1: and those people? Abe all the time. Abe called me the lefty and he would joke with me but as one of the reporters said he's not joking with you but Arthur Gelb I was very close to. Louis Silverstein I was very close to. Uh, some of the VPs, some of the top editors in op-ed editorial. There were a good number of people that I had more than just a couple of words with.
0: I mean, because it was such a straight place in comparison to where you'd been, were people did you talk about your sort of world beforehand, or did you sort of seek it, keep it secret?
1: No, I didn't keep it secret. and. Goldstein wouldn't let me keep it secret. I don't think I wrote about it in the memoir. I think I might have taken it out. But two weeks after I got to the Times, he was pissed at me for leaving, because we were friends. And he was proud, but he was, you know, like, you get you both feelings. Mm-hmm. And the two weeks after I got there, uh, I got a call up on the editorial floor from the guards and they said, there's some people down here with very long hair and we're not gonna let them up until you come down and get them. When I went down, there were three guys in gorilla suits and it was Goldstein and two other people and they put me in a limousine and took me to the market diner down the block. So people knew and they knew very early. I mean, they knew from Lou Silverstein because he had to show my portfolio to people. And Abe knew because Goldstein kept putting Abe in the shit list. And the piece on Goldstein in the memoir was originally done for the Times Book Review, and it ran in a slightly different form, but it's pretty much what I ran, wrote for the book review.
0: Yeah, you mentioned in the in that that he deserves a much better biography, and I agree.
1: Well, I got an email yesterday from an amazing source who's a friend of mine who's been at the Times for, I guess, 15 years now, maybe more, who just is kind of like Zelig. He pops up everywhere. He knows everybody. He's reintroduced me to people that I knew from my past. He's introduced me to people that I didn't know but knew of. His name's Jeff Roth and he runs the morgue. So if you ever saw the movie about the mor- uh, the obits, mm-hmm. he's in it. He's one of the main talking heads. And um, so he, we were together. I did this interview, live interview for a podcast to come out for Reason Magazine. And he came and he was telling me that he was going to have dinner with Gay Talese. Well, Gay Talese used to hang out at Screw when he was doing one of his books. And in fact, when he did his book on Joe Bonanno, we interviewed him for Mobster Times. And so I said, you know, Gay's not going to remember me because Jeff said I'm going to show him the book. And he sent me an email yesterday saying, oh yeah, the great Steve Heller, I remember him from Screw and there were so many great people at Screw, including Al Goldstein who was uh, you know, whatever, a, a real mensch, you know, somebody who was important to the culture.
0: I loved seeing all the the covers and, you know, the various pages you included in your book. It was beautifully printed um, in your memoir. Especially the rock covers. I hadn't seen those. Those were... Fun to see.
1: Yeah, I always thought all of that stuff was crappy, and then people started saying, "Oh, it's amazing!" It's blah 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 blah. I mean, it's amazing how self perception can vary uh, from reality. And the other thing that has surprised me is, uh, like, I got a, I haven't gotten big reviews, which is disappointing, but not depressingly so. I didn't expect it. But I didn't expect this review, short review, but nice one and curbed. And it talks about how funny it is. And Everybody I talked to says, at least for the first half, they laughed out loud. And I don't see it as funny. I see it as snide and snarky because I, I am good at quips, but I've never, re- I've, I quip in a sentence and then I get serious because I figure I shouldn't quit too much. And so it surprised me that that's a response that people had.
0: Thank you so much for all of this.
1: Well, thank you for doing it. It's
0: been wonderful. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Stephen Heller. On the website, i put together a slideshow of images of Stephen's work and a short bio. I am a little behind in editing, but I've recorded a ton of really great interviews to come soon from everyone from actors and iconic artists, to writers and fashion designers. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at sizewhispers.com.